0: Nothing blesses and encourages old believers like me than seeing brand new baby believers uh, coming to Christ and sharing their faith in the Lord. So uh, this is a high day for me at Cornerstone, days like this. Perhaps you're a guest here today, and uh, you've never witnessed a baptism before, and you're going to think this is a strange thing that they're doing. Why do they submerge people into water? Why do they dunk people underwater like that? Maybe you were baptized yourself as a baby, as I was, as Amanda was, and, and uh, uh, Jen, I think, said she was too. Many of us here have been, and you don't even know what that was about. Why are these two ladies being baptized today? What's it all about? Well, I want to tell you it's about something very special, something uh, very sacred something very scriptural you know when when a person is getting ready to leave this earth when they're getting ready to depart and go home to be with the Lord the last words that they speak are very special and when the Lord Jesus was about to ascend into heaven these were his last words to his disciples he said all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, immersing them, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you and taught you. The word that he used there uh, in the original language, baptizo, means to immerse, to submerge, to dip into, and and he used it in a religious way sense here as he spoke these words, but if you think of the verse again or say the verse this way, so go therefore and make disciples of all nations, immersing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I think there lies the mystery and the glory of baptism. When you become a disciple of Jesus Christ, this is what's happening. You are being immersed into God, into the Father, into the Son, into the Holy Spirit, the moment that a sinner is born again and saved, something very wonderful and mysterious happens. 1 Corinthians 12:13 tells us that the Holy Spirit baptizes the new believer into the body of Christ, immerses that person into the body of Christ, which is the church of which Christ is the head. And that is a work of the Spirit that's invisible, it's spiritual, and it's a sovereign act of God. It's something that we can't see happening. It's not not something you can see with your eyes. And it's this that water baptism is picturing, your spiritual baptism. It's picturing your identity with Jesus Christ, especially in His death and burial and resurrection. Going down under the water is symbolic of, of your old life of sin as you put your faith in Christ. That old life of sin is being going down under dying, submerged, death, burial. Coming up out of the water is your new life in Christ, being raised with Him to new life. And that's what baptism symbolizes. So today the the doctrine, the main teaching of, of this sermon is this, that Christian baptism is an outward confession of the inward reality of having believed and receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. So if you've done that, what is the road to baptism? What are the steps that lead up to it? What must precede baptism? And I want to share three things with you this morning. The first is this, that the light has to come on. We're going to look at Acts chapter 9 verses 1 through 5 here this morning. Paul's Conversion on the Damascus Road. When we started the service this morning, we were a little bit rowdy. We were singing that that old Hank Williams song. Not that he was a great gospel writer, but uh, I saw the light. I wandered so aimless, life full of sin. I wouldn't let my dear Savior in. Then Jesus came like a stranger in the night, and praise the Lord, I saw the light. And this is the first thing that has to happen: the gospel light has to shine in a person's heart. God must remove their blindness. God must give them sight before they can be saved, before they can understand and comprehend the gospel. And there are many New Testament examples of this. We're going to look at just this one here in Acts chapter 9 because it's the most famous and it's the most detailed. It's repeated three times in the book of Acts. And it's about Saul of Tarsus. He's a rising star in Judaism in the first century he is a, a, a fanatical Pharisee. I mean, his zeal for God is unmatched. He is all about wiping out this, what he thinks is a cult called Christianity that is, that is leading many of the Jewish people into thinking that Jesus was actually the Messiah, that he was the Christ. And Paul would have none of that. So he is hunting down Jews who have converted to Christianity and putting them to death. He has the authority to do that from the Jewish council. In Acts chapter 9 verse 1 it begins, then Saul still breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest. He's, he's, he's done this in Jerusalem and in the closer areas to Jerusalem. Now he wants to branch out and he asked for letters from uh, for him to go to the synagogues up in, in Damascus of Syria, so that if he found any there, any Jews who were of the way, that is, of followers of Christ, Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and they began to, to uh, call Christianity in the early days the way, if he found any who were followers of the way, whether men or women, that he might bring them bound, chained to, to Jerusalem. So Paul, or he's not Paul yet, he's Saul, he's going to become Paul after he's converted, but Saul is a very religious man. He thought he was being a good Jew by stomping out Christianity and taking care of this heresy that was in the church. So verse 3 says, as he journeyed along, he came to Damascus. And we don't know if he was walking or on a horse. Uh, He had a, a a group with him that would help him to arrest believers in Damascus, uh, so it really doesn't matter if he was riding or walking. But as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. And it was like the blinding brilliance of the sun beaming down on Paul, so powerful that the next thing he knows, he is on the ground, and he's totally blind. He fell to the ground. And he heard a voice from this, the Shekinah glory of light saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Notice who is seeking who here. Saul is not seeking Jesus. But Jesus is coming and seeking Saul. Saul is blind. He's spiritually dead. He's religious, yes. But he doesn't know the way yet. Saul hated Jesus. What had nothing to do with him. You've heard the testimonies this morning of Jen sharing how she grew up in a religious way, but really didn't know the Lord until the Lord sought her and found her and brought her to himself. And likewise with Amanda that just a few months ago, she was an atheist, didn't believe there was a God, couldn't, didn't see how that was compatible at all with, with so-called science. But Jesus sought and found her through many and various interventions. She heard the gospel, and the light of the gospel pierced the darkness of her heart. And that's why she's here today. That's why Jen is here today sharing their testimony, wanting to be baptized. And I want you to notice the personal aspect of what's going on here with Saul of Tarsus. The fact that God is personally seeking this man, Saul, Saul. He calls him by name. And that's what Christ does. He calls sinners to himself into a relationship with himself. It's a personal thing. Nobody else can do this for you. Nobody can make you a Christian. This is something personal that Christ does in drawing you to himself. In John 10 he said, "I am the good shepherd." The good shepherd calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings them out his own sheep out his own sheep, he goes before them. And the sheep follow him, and they know his voice. And later it says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me and hear this, and I give them eternal life. And they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Saul is hearing the call. Jesus is about to give him eternal life, and he doesn't know who this is yet speaking to him. So in verse 5 of Acts 9, it says he's trembling, he's petrified. He says, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, and the Lord shattered his heart with these words, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. That was like a, a sudden, thunderous tsunami sweeping down upon his life and turning his whole world upside down. Everything gets swept away with these words. Everything that Saul has lived for has been a lie. All his religious zeal, all his good works, and all of it was he's actually persecuting God. He's not serving God. He's a very religious man, but he may as well have been an atheist. And now he's saying to himself, How did I miss all this? How did I not know the truth? How could I have been so wrong? Very words that we heard Amanda share a few minutes ago. Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. It's hard for you to kick against these pointed sticks that they would use as cattle prods. Saul, you're fighting me. And you can't win. You're only hurting yourself. The power of the gospel is beginning to explode in his heart. The good shepherd is calling his name. And spiritual light is flooding into his soul. And this is the first step on the road to baptism. The light of the gospel has to shine in your heart. And when it does, it will humble you to the dust. And you will realize, I've been fighting against God. I'm not the religious person I thought I was. And you see your sins. And you see that they are offensive and vile before God. You see that you're in rebellion against God. That you're, you are in rebellion against His holy law. You've broken all His commandments. And you can do nothing to save yourself. You stand condemned before God's court. You can't clean up your life. The cancer of sin is incurable. But that's why Jesus Christ came. That is the gospel. This is the good news. He came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. He came down to appease the wrath of God against my sin. He came down to bear my sin on that cross. He came to suffer my hell. He came to satisfy the Father's justice. He came to clothe me in His righteousness. The light has to come on. And I ask you this morning, do you really get the gospel? Or are you still kicking against the goads? Are you fighting Christ? I pray the Lord Jesus will call your name this morning, if that is the case. That He will shine this brilliant light of the gospel into your heart that he will dispel the darkness that's there, that he will give you eternal life as he's about to do for Saul of Tarsus. So the light must come on, number one. Number two, you respond to that light, you respond to the gospel with repentance and faith. And I'm reading now from the New King James Version, and verse six begins this way, so he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what will you have me to do? And if you don't have the New King James or King James Version that line isn't there because the other translations are are taking uh, their uh, words from different manuscripts so I'm not going to get into the argument this morning of, of which manuscripts are right and which are wrong whether this was in the original or not it really doesn't matter Paul if he didn't speak these words he was definitely feeling these words in his heart Lord, what would you have me to do? They're such loaded words, because now he believes that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, that he is risen from the dead, and he's a believer who's bowing before the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Jesus, you have found me out. You have exposed my sin. Forgive me. Forgive my ignorance. My life is yours, Lord. Take it. What do you want me to do? and there's like a 180 degree turn, there's a conversion now that's taking place in his life. He was all out against Christ and now he is all out for Christ. And the sincerity of that will be proved in the years that follow in his life. Saul the persecutor will become Paul the persecuted one. Saul the hunter will become Paul the hunted one. He will be whipped and beaten many times. He will be stoned twice and left for death. He will be shipwrecked in the deep as he is, as he is uh, being imprisoned and transporting the gospel. He will be mobbed. He will be chained up. He will be imprisoned for years and ultimately he will be martyred for his faith. But he will spread the gospel across the Gentile world. That's why we're here this morning as Gentiles. Because God used this Saul of Tarsus, to bring the gospel to the Gentile world. What is your response to the gospel? What do you say to the crucified, risen Christ this morning? Have you experienced this 180 true conversion in your life? Was there ever a time when you were deeply convicted of your sin? And did you ever cry out in repentance, Lord Jesus, save me, forgive me, I, I, don't, I didn't even know what I was doing. I was blind. I was dead. Was there ever a time when you truly believed that Jesus died on the cross for you personally and that he rose again on the third day from the dead? I first heard the gospel up at a little Bible camp in Heartland, New Brunswick when I was 15 years old. I had never read Acts chapter 9, didn't know anything about Saul or Paul. But I can tell you that when, when the light came on, as I saw my sins and saw Jesus dying on the cross for me, the only response that I could give to that was to trust him with all my heart and soul as my savior. And to say, Lord, what will you have me to do with my life? After what you've done for me, the least I can do is give you my life. The response was faith, repentance, adoration, and worship. The desire that God put in my heart was to want to live for Him. It's nothing that I mustered up, and it is to this day. Lord, how can I serve you better every day? Lord, what, what do you want me to do today? Whatever you bring to me, Lord, just fill me with your Spirit. Help me to, to be Christ-like and to serve you with all my heart. Every day is a new adventure. I've been thinking recently about, you know, as a pastor, the, what you experience in the run of a day. Just, it's, it's the, the deepest joys you can imagine and the greatest trials and heartaches you can imagine. And they all get mixed in the pot during the run of a day. And uh, it just, it's just, it's amazing. It's incredible. But the good thing is that I have Christ He's mine. I'm His. And I get to live for Him. As followers of Christ, we are to obey the command, go and be baptized. Paul is ready to do that. The light has gone on. He's on his face, repenting and believing in Christ. And now this Damascus this Damascus road is going to lead Saul to baptism and this is the third thing third point this morning arise and be baptized and if you have the if you're following the outline I sent out in the email yesterday um, that third point was put on the wedding band well I got convicted about that last night as I thought about it because that's not really in the text here and if you're going to preach the Word, you really need to get your points from the Word. The, the idea of putting on the wedding band, you'll see shortly. It's an analogy. It's an illustration, so it shouldn't be a main point. So scratch that. Arise and be baptized. Paul is going to put on the badge now of his new union with Christ, the badge of baptism. He's commanded by Christ to go into the city and to wait, and he's told I will tell you what you must do, but wait. So he had to be led by the hand into the the city of Damascus through that great stone wall. And I'm not sure where they took him, but we are told in verse 9 that he was there three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. And you can imagine what he must have been thinking and feeling and grieving over that that he was responsible for the death of so many men and women, so many followers of Christ. He has put them on trial, and and they've been martyred, starting with Stephen, the first martyr. And that blood is on his hands. So there had to be deep grief and sorrow and conviction. But he sees the truth now. After three days, God sent a disciple named Ananias with a message for Paul in verse 17. Ananias went his way and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul. He's addressing Saul now as a fellow believer. Saul is converted. He's been born again. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. He arose and put on that badge of discipleship. He arose and identified himself now with the Lord Jesus Christ. He arose and put on, I want to say, the wedding band of union with Christ. Over the twenty four and a half years or so that I've been here at Cornerstone, I've done 24 weddings, pretty well one every year on average. And near the end of every ceremony, it always goes the same way, and you could probably quote it if you've been at those weddings, but as further confirmation of your wedding vows and in pledge of your love, may I have the rings, please. And then I turn usually to the best man or... Uh, the ring bearer and he puts the rings in my hand and I turn back to the bride and groom and hold out the rings and the groom takes his ring first and he repeats after me I do she's putting the ring on her finger I do with this ring I make this holy covenant with you and then the bride takes the ring and puts it on the finger of her new husband I do With this ring, I make this covenant with you. And I usually say after that, let these rings speak to you both of the emblem of the value and the purity and the enduring love that you've each promised for each other. And that they are the seal of the vows that you have just pledged your most solemn and sacred honor to. The ring on the finger, left hand. The ring on the left hand means what? That you're married. You're taken. You belong to somebody. If, you, if, if I didn't wear the wedding ring, or if, if Linda didn't wear the wedding ring on her finger, would she still be married? Absolutely. Absolutely. But why would she not wear it? What if she just said to me one day, Wayne, I'm not going to wear the wedding ring anymore. I tell you, I would be deeply concerned, deeply, deeply hurt by that. Why doesn't she want to wear the ring? Why doesn't she want to acknowledge anymore her marriage to me, that she is married? I might get a little suspicious. I'm glad and honored to wear this ring for the past 40 years. I'm glad and honored to be married to a godly beautiful woman. Why would I not want to wear her ring? It's a symbol of the vows that we've taken and the pledges that we've made to each other that are for life. And likewise, baptism is like putting on the ring. You're identifying with Christ's death and His burial and His resurrection. Can you be saved without being baptized? Absolutely. But why would you not want to wear his ring? Why would you not want to be baptized? It is the greatest honor in all the world. I still remember as a teenager being so thrilled and excited to go to that stream in Holmesville, New Brunswick, and and being baptized back in the late summer of 1973. Today, it's my privilege to baptize the 112th and 113th baptismal candidates. You've heard their testimonies. The light of the gospel has shone in their hearts. They have responded with faith and repentance in the Lord. What hinders them from being baptized? That's what the Ethiopian eunuch said to Philip after he shared the gospel with them. Here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? I believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. They are brides of Christ ready to put on the ring today and publicly confess Christ as their Lord and Savior. And you are invited to the ring ceremony. We are going to uh, have the musicians come back with one more song. And then I invite you to come out into the new edition and just gather around the baptismal tank out there and we'll conclude the service at that point.